Well, I have a question for you this morning. It's a question perhaps you've been asked in the past, but the question is this. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? As a pastor, I'm often asked about the nature of this church. People want to know first and foremost, which has always struck me as sort of goofy, but a worldly way of thinking about things. People want to know about its size. How many people? Because that's a sure uh, characteristic of a successful church, a God-honoring, blessed church, is that you have thousands of people thronging your ministry. I'm kidding. Oftentimes, small is a blessing, and small may be evidence of faithfulness. People oftentimes want to know what denomination we are or what the demographics are of your church, old or young, uh, various ethnicities, But it's not uncommon for someone to ask me, is your church spirit-filled? Now, having come out of the Calvary Chapel movement back in the 80s in Southern California, close enough to John Wimber and Jack Hayford and some of the others, I know what they mean by that question. But I always say to them, I hope so. Because if we are not spirit-filled, we are no church of Christ. Sometimes the question comes in a very personal way. Are you filled with the Spirit? To which my answer is the same. There was a charismatic administrative assistant at a former school I used to teach at. She was a good friend and a single mother, and I had her daughter in sixth grade. And... Kindly, she would tell me how much her daughter enjoyed class, and me personally, she, she thanked me for serving as a, a good role model and a, a father figure of sorts to her daughter. And then she would often tell me with a grin that the two of them would pray at night that I would get baptized in the Spirit, that I might be filled with the Spirit. From their perspective... I was a Christian, but I was just a Christian. I was a Christian with immense potential. I'd make the kingdom of heaven, but just barely. I would ask her, well, how will I know when your prayers have been answered? And she told me in no uncertain terms that I would speak in tongues and it would be plain. And I guess I'm here to tell you that until up until this point anyway, I am still... Uh, void of that sign. That kind of question, are you filled with the Holy Spirit, assumes, of course, a common understanding of what the filling of the Spirit is. What it means to be baptized in the Spirit. So I ask you this morning this question, are you spirit-filled? What about this church? Is it spirit-filled? What does it look like to be spirit-filled? What does it look like? What does it feel like to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? These are very, very important questions, foundational questions. And we started to answer them last time we were together. You'll remember it was a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, and it was Pentecost Sunday. What better time to preach on Pentecost than Pentecost Sunday? We looked at the first 13 verses of Acts chapter 2, and we want to read that again this morning. Let's go there together. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues like fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. So they were astonished and marveling, saying, Behold, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language in which we were born? 
Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the district of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome and both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in astonishment and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking were saying they're full of new wine. Now we worked our way through that passage last time we were together. And we did so asking these basic questions. Number one, what happened? Number two, why did it happen? And number three, and the question we're going to consider today is, is it still happening? And we're only going to get a start on answering that question, but start we will by the grace of God. Now, what happened? Well, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church on the day of Pentecost, and this outpouring was evidenced by a number of divinely orchestrated signs. There was the sound of mighty rushing wind. There was, was the appearance of these tongues of fire, these cloven tongues, these divided tongues. And people were speaking languages they had never learned, they'd never studied. All of these signs, of course, had been prophesied in the Old Testament. John the Baptist spoke of them. Jesus spoke of them. And we made this point that this has to be this way because God never does anything willy-nilly. He doesn't just decide all of a sudden to, to, to do it this way. He had been laying this out for generations before, and now comes this day of Pentecost, and all of that is very significant, and you can find all of that in a message that I preached two weeks ago and online. But the point is that God always does what he does intentionally. He always does it thoughtfully. And I want to simply remind you of a few things as we move through this text quickly. What happened? Well, as the Spirit was poured out, there was this sound, not a wind itself, but the sound, this, this heavenly hurricane, this, this uh, whirlwind, if you will, this, this, this raging sound that came down upon them and with it the giving of the Spirit. Now, Spirit and wind are the same word, both in Greek and Hebrew. And the Holy Spirit came and is likened in Scripture as a mighty wind. You remember in John 3 that he blows where he wishes in the sovereign will of God, and he works effectively to accomplish the life-giving power of God. What about these tongues of fire? Well, often in Scripture, fire is used to depict God. You'll remember the Shekinah fire or pillar of fire. You'll remember the burning bush with Moses. This is why the Scriptures teach that we should not what? Quench the Spirit of God. There was wind or the sound of wind. There was the appearance of fire, and there were these tongues, or better, as I said last week, languages. It had been foretold many times in Scripture that God's people would speak in foreign languages as a sign of judgment and a demonstration that he was now sending salvation out beyond the Jews and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. All of that is by way of review. Now, why did it happen? Well, all of it was to fulfill the Old Testament promises which foretold the coming of the Spirit after the Messiah was glorified and ascended. And so we saw that the gift of languages was given to the apostolic church for four reasons. And I'm going to give you a fifth today. The first reason was that it was given as a, as a sign of judgment upon the Jews who had rejected their king and his kingdom, and that, as I said, in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, now we see that salvation is going out to the nations, it's going out to the Gentiles, it's going out to the uttermost parts of the earth. We also saw that the gift of languages was given to signify a transition from the old covenant to the new. There was a massive transition going on. 
And that transition was marked by a, a new thing, something that had not been evidenced before. That transition really demanded evidence that God was in fact doing something new, that there was thirdly a, a, a progress, if you will, in God's redemptive plan, that the gospel's beginning to go out to the nations and how are people to know uh, whether this message should believe, be believed or not or whether God was in fact working or not. Well, these tongues were a sign of just that. Also, fourthly, it authenticated the apostles and their ministry and message. How are you to know that Peter and John and James and Paul later on were in fact representatives of God? Well, they had the signs that accompanied apostleship. I want to add to that today as we look forward to next week, actually, where we'll, we'll consider tongues um, specifically. The tongues were also revelatory. Tongues were given for a time, and as the true, true gift was exercised in the church, it was so that the scriptures and the word of God might be revealed to that infant church in the time that the New Testament was being completed. We'll see that, as I said, more in 1 Corinthians. Now we're ready to consider this question of, does this kind of thing still happen? Is it still happening? Should we expect our own personal Pentecost? Should we expect the kind of drama that played out in the early church. Remember, this is one of the questions we've been asking from the book of Acts is, should we expect everything that happens in the book of Acts to happen in our day and age? Some would say yes to that question. Is it normative for there to be, when one receives the Spirit, this sound of rushing wind and cloven tongues on your head? Sure make it simple in some ways when it came to membership interviews, right? We had a baptism class this morning. I, I want to know, are these people in Christ? If they could just start speaking Swahili, it would be helpful to me. Should each of us expect to see signs and wonders? If you watch TBN, and I would discourage you from doing it, but if you do, you would, you would think that perhaps. Should each of us expect to speak in tongues? Are tongues the definitive evidence of spirit baptism? Should we seek the gift of tongues? Should we seek and pray for baptism in the spirit? Should we ask the Lord for this gift? All of these are important questions, and these questions have confronted the church really, uh, they've been a bone of contention, frankly, for the last 60 years or so, since the early 60s. For the entirety of my lifetime, these questions have been uh, being put back and forth over the net between believers and have served to really divide the church in, in many ways. We're going to take time in the weeks ahead to look a little bit at the history of the Pentecostal movement because I think it's critical to this question or answering these questions. But the beginnings of the Pentecostal movement really are traced back as far as January 1st, 1901. And we'll talk about what happened on that day and in subsequent experiences uh, thereafter. But if you think that we're just sort of dancing around here with things that might be kind of cute and interesting but really are of no import, you need to understand that nearly one in four of every, every professing believer, nearly one in four, 25% of the Christians worldwide come from a Pentecostal denomination. If we're to include Catholics as those who profess faith in Christ, Pentecostalism comes in second to Catholicism in terms of those making a claim to Christ. Their estimates range, and it's broad, but between 350 to 600 million charismatics exist in this world today, and particularly in the third world, we find this doctrine having massive influence 
We're going to take our time over the weeks ahead to develop this kind of step by step, and I want to pick up where we left off two weeks ago and expand our understanding. As you begin, you must understand there are two cardinal doctrines that mark out Pentecostal theology and, and most charismatics. Charismatics is a, is a broader term than Pentecostal. Charismatics deals more with the charismata and the gifts. Uh, Pentecostals, th- th- there are some differences. But these are the two core doctrines, the foundational teachings, those things that set apart Pentecostal theology, charismatic theology, from what most of us here at least believe. Number one is this. They believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a subsequent filling that comes at some point after your conversion to Christ. It is subsequent. Secondly, they believe that that baptism of the Holy Spirit is evidenced primarily in speaking in tongues. Now, we touched on these things last time but they really do need further development, and I want to take these two distinctives and flesh them out over the next few weeks. We're just going to take the first one today, which is this idea of what is, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? This is really, really foundational to understanding why tongues is such a significant element of their doctrine. So what is the Pentecostal doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, you need to write down two terms. One is separability, separability, and the other is subsequence, subsequence. Separability means, stay with me here, that regeneration, being born again, coming to faith in Christ, conversion by the Spirit, and baptism with the Holy Spirit are separate. They are distinct. They are two distinct works. Subsequence means that while every believer is converted to Christ by trusting in the gospel, the fullness, hear me again carefully, the fullness of spiritual life and power comes at a later time through a second work of the Spirit of God in baptizing you in the Holy Spirit. Separability, salvation, and and the filling of the Spirit are separate things. And subsequence meaning that every believer is converted through faith in Christ, but then comes to salvation or 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 it comes to the fullness of that salvation through being baptized by the Holy Spirit at a later time. Now, Pentecostal commentator Donald Gee writes this, quote, the central fact of the Pentecostal experience consists in being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is distinct, he says, from his previous work in regeneration. It couldn't be stated more clearly than that. The central fact of the Pentecostal experience consists in being filled with the Holy Spirit, and this is distinct from his previous work in regeneration. In other words, the Holy Spirit first causes unbelievers to be born again, and then at a later time, he powerfully falls upon them as, as, as a gift of power for mission. Another Pentecostal said it this way, and it was striking. It struck me this morning as I I was reading through this again. He says, as sinners, we accept Christ. As saints, we accept the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a post-conversion experience of the Holy Spirit. It is a second work that is That is a a permanent indwelling and a greater, if you will, effusion of the Spirit. You have a, the Spirit comes and indwells you, 
and then the Spirit comes in his fullness. You get more of him. And so I spoke about this a couple weeks ago. What do you end up with? You end up with a two-tiered Christianity, don't you? You have those who are, who are sort of in, and you have those who are really in. You have those who are somewhat saved, and you have those who are, who are especially saved. In Pentecostal theology, being baptized with the Spirit and filled with the Spirit is synonymous. Those are the same thing. They use those terms interchangeably. Have you been baptized in the Spirit is the same question of are you full in the Spirit? Do you have the fullness? Is this a Spirit-filled church? That's what they want to know. Does the Holy Spirit reside here in a powerful way, and does he work his obvious demonstrations of his presence, namely being mostly tongues? That's what they want to know when they ask that question. And again, beloved, I'm not seeking to pit us, myself, against charismatics. What I'm trying to do is tell you accurately what the Bible teaches about this doctrine so that you would understand it clearly, so that you would be able to understand what you're encountering as you skim across TBN, and you might be able to actually help both your children and a charismatic in the future perhaps see the way of God more accurately. I'm seeking to equip you. Don't don't take what I'm saying as though Dave's against charismatics or this church is against Pentecostals. We are not. Most of them that I have known have been wonderful people, brothers in Christ, good friends. But I think they're confused about some things, and I don't want you to be. All believers, according to the teaching of Pentecostalism have some measure of the Holy Spirit and are in various ways influenced by the Holy Spirit. But not all believers, according to Pentecostal theology, are indwelt by the Spirit. In other words, you can be saved but not indwelt. They would teach that not all are indwelt personally. In other words, the Holy Spirit operates much like we talked about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit operates sort of on or with a Christian who hasn't been spirit baptized. That's what happens when you're regenerated is the Spirit acts on you. He he exists alongside of you. But in Pentecostal doctrine, he is not yet within you until you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit at a later time, which is something, by the way, that you have to seek. You must pray for. There are qualifications that must be met. You must be obedient. You must have sufficient faith. You must be repentant. You must be walking. It all comes out of the holiness movement, frankly, and so it's, it, it, all that is tied together. And, and so there's, there's a great sense in a charismatic Pentecostal church that your life, you're sort of in again and out again. It's this roller coaster ride. If Some of you have been there and you know this. You're not anchored in the all-sufficient work of Christ. You're constantly seeking a Pentecostal experience of the Spirit of God. And if I feel it and I have it and it's evident, then God is with me, but then boop, he can be gone. Pentecostals also teach that you do not, upon believing in Christ, receive the Spirit fully. The Spirit is given in measure at salvation, but only a portion. Thirdly, they would say that not all have the Spirit permanently. Again, one can have an encounter with Christ and be saved, but until you have an encounter with the Holy Spirit, you do not have the the persevering power of the Holy Spirit to see you to the end. Dale Bruner, who wrote an excellent book on the theology of the Holy Spirit, says, quote, this much is clear. In the Pentecostal understanding, not enough happens in the new birth. The baptism with the Spirit completes whatever was lacking in conversion. 
And as I said, all of this has got to be eagerly sought. Now the question is, does this understanding of spirit baptism and spirit filling square with Scripture? And the answer is no. This is not what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit's baptizing work. This is not what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit's filling work. And I want to convince you of both of those things today. And I think if you can hang with us and let your fingers do the working through the book of Acts, you're going to see this very evidently. What is the biblical doctrine then of of the baptism of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit? How do you know whether you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit? And I want to state this bluntly because the Bible states this bluntly. Romans 8, 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. You understand what that is saying? If you have not been baptized by the Spirit of God, then you are not a Christian. You are still in your sins. You are still in the world. You are still destined for hell. Every single believer receives the Spirit of Christ and, as I'll note later, receives that Spirit fully at the point of regeneration. I'm just going to read to you from Galatians chapter 3. Just be there briefly. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 2. You remember the question that Paul asks the Galatians? He says, this is the only thing I want to learn from you. Did you, Galatians, receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What's the answer to that question? They receive the Spirit by hearing with faith. We're not saved by works. It's by grace through faith alone in Christ Jesus alone to the glory of God alone. And when you believe, you receive the Spirit of God. Then he asks, he says, are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, you see, he answers his rhetorical question. You began, every last one of you Galatians, who are in fact in Christ, began by the Spirit. And he says, are you now trying to be perfected in the flesh? The Scripture teaches, beloved, that every genuine believer is baptized with the Holy Spirit at conversion by the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember John says, this Lamb of God who is coming, he's going to baptize you with what? With the Holy Spirit and with fire. Christ does the baptizing, and he baptizes every one of his believers at that point of regeneration. It is something that is invisible. It is something that is not experiential. No buzzer goes off in your head. No shimmering in your stomach. There is nothing like that. God sovereignly acts monergistically. That's a big word that means by himself. He sends the Spirit and he resurrects your spirit which has been dead in sin, dead in trespasses. He makes you alive together with Christ. And that's very evident because the change is so, so dramatic. Quietly, invisibly, irrevocably, we are baptized. The word simply means immersed. We think baptism and we think water. Most of the references to baptism in the scripture, you can't find water anywhere. It has the idea of union. It is to be unified with Christ, to be immersed in Christ, and that happens. We're brought into vital union with Christ through the indwelling spirit. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans 6.3. Do you not know that all of us, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. All of us were baptized into Christ. His death is your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. His righteous life is your righteousness through faith. We have union with Christ. 
And that union comes as the Spirit is poured out upon us. That's not all. It is the baptism of the Spirit that also places you, unifies you with, brings you into union with, immerses you in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For also by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, We were all made to drink of one spirit. Do you see what's happening? You have individuals being brought into one body through one faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, one baptism. We share the Holy Spirit. That is the very very life of our unity with one another. We are sharers in a common life through the Spirit of God. So you need to understand this. There is no scripture apart from the book of Acts, that teaches either implicitly or explicitly any subsequent work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I qualified that by saying outside the book of Acts because as I confessed to you a couple of weeks ago, the baptisms in the Spirit that we do see in the book of Acts are in fact subsequent. But there's a reason for that and you're going to have to wait for that reason next week. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is necessarily related to, but it is distinct from the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's important to understand. Those are two ministries of the Holy Spirit. It is one thing to be baptized in the Spirit. It's another thing, related but independent. In a sense, it's different than being filled with the Spirit. So what do we mean by being filled with the Spirit? Well, as I told you before, this is a commandment we're given in Ephesians 5.18. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're to be being filled. We're to be full of the Spirit of God. And I gave you a definition that said fundamentally what it means is to be under the control of the Spirit of God. It is to have your life yielded to that Spirit. It is to have your life animated by that Spirit. I gave you a couple of illustrations. When we talk about somebody being full of life, what do we mean? Well, they're, 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 they're spunky, they're enthusiastic, they're full of enthusiasm. You can see the life that's within those people. So it is with the Spirit of God. We're to be full of the Spirit of God. What do we mean by that? Well, the evidence of that fullness, the evidence of that inward spirit, that indwelling spirit should be emanating out of us as we live lives that are like Christ. We talked about a child who might be full of anticipation about receiving a bicycle at Christmas and how the, that fullness of anticipation would have him fixed and focused on that bike. He really couldn't think about much else. He was just consumed with, one, with wanting that bike. And so it is when we are full of the Holy Spirit that we are dominated by the Spirit. We're under the control of the Spirit. Our thoughts, our actions, our words, everything is a reflection of the Spirit of God who lives within us. That's what Paul means when he writes, be being filled with the Spirit. Beloved, we want to be under his mastery. We want the Word of God, which the Spirit of God uses among the people of God, to convert and to conform to the image of God. This is what the Spirit of God does. He is the Spirit of truth who uses that word through our lives to make Christ manifest. We want him to permeate our lives so that everything that we think and we say and we do is a reflection of Christ in us. Now, this morning you were handed a a chart when you walked in, and I gave that to you so you can stick it in your Bible because I know trying to keep this clear in your head sometimes gets fuzzy. But I just want to go through those contrasts. Being baptized with the Spirit happens once, and it happens at conversion. You don't seek a second, a third, a fourth baptism. It happens once. Being filled with the Spirit, on the other hand, is something that should be continuous and repeated. We are to be being filled continuously. 
Secondly, being baptized with the Spirit is independent of any observable sign or experience. You don't feel it, you don't hear it, you don't taste it, you can't touch it. However, being filled with the Spirit will be very evident. It will produce a Christ-like character and witness in your life. Being baptized with the Spirit, as I've said, is monergistic. It's God's doing alone. We don't have anything to do with that. The Spirit blows where it wishes. Being filled with the Spirit, on the other hand, is synergistic, meaning that you're involved in this thing. Be being filled is a verb that is passive, but he's calling us to, 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 to take our lives and to, to bring them into to yieldedness to the Spirit of God. And so you're involved in that very thing, and we do that, of course, through prayer, through knowledge of the Word, through fellowship, through all the means of grace. Fourthly, being baptized with the Spirit is positional. You're being immersed, unified. You're being placed into Christ and into the church. That's all about your position. Being filled with the Spirit is ultimately practical. It's a life that's lived out of Spirit control. It's a life that's demonstrated in love and service. Fifthly, being baptized with the Spirit, the Spirit is received at the point of regeneration in full measure. God doesn't hand out the Spirit piecemeal. So the greatest believer and the least of the believers have the same Holy Spirit indwelling them. But there may be a difference in the way the fullness of the Spirit and the fruitfulness of that Spirit will come out of those two lives depending on, their, uh, depending on a lot of things. Finally, sixth, the being baptized with the Spirit is irrevocable. The Spirit is the pledge of our inheritance. The Spirit is the, 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 the seal of God upon our lives that we belong to him and that we are his eternally. Whereas when we are filled with the Spirit, that fullness can be, it can ebb and flow, it can be diminished by fleshly indulgence and worldliness. And I gave you an illustration of a, of a camping lantern before, and the idea is to keep that, that glass clean so that the light that's within is shining brightly. It might be better if you're not a camper to think of leveler blinds. Keep your blinds open. <laughs> that's what the aim of your life is, to let the Spirit of God live out and through you and manifest the light of Christ. All right. With that under our belts, I hope. We're in Acts 2, and you can go there if you're not there now, and we see that the 120 are baptized with the Holy Spirit. And what we see after this, all the way through the book of Acts, is we will see no longer the language of baptism. You'll only hear the language of filling, full of the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit. Now here's the question that I want you to think about as we move our way quickly through the book of Acts. How does this fullness of the Spirit manifest itself? What does it look like in the Bible when somebody is filled with the Spirit? And, and you, you get my methodology here. If we can understand biblically what it looks like to be filled, then we can answer the question, am I filled? Is this church filled with the Spirit of God? We're going to have to skip quickly, but we're going to do it nonetheless. You already know that in Acts 2, These 120 were baptized in the Spirit, and simultaneously they were filled with the Spirit. And what was the response of that? It was bold preaching of the gospel. It was bold declaration in foreign languages of the glory and the good works of God, right? We saw that. Now, look down at four, chapter 4 and verse 8. What you will see is that Peter, who was there among the 120, who was there and was full of the Spirit, on the day of Pentecost, now in chapter 4, in verse 8, what we find is that Peter again is filled with the Spirit, indicating that filling is a repetitive thing, unlike the baptism of the Spirit. Let's read together. Chapter 4, in verse 8, then Peter, here's the phrase we're tracing through the book of Acts, filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being examined today for a good deed done to a sick man as to how this man 
has been saved from his sickness, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone. He, Christ, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Those are fighting words, friends. And Peter lays it out. Why? Because he was filled with the Spirit. Verse 13. Now as they observed the confidence or the boldness of Peter and John, comprehending that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. What a transformation in this man's life. The man who cowered before the servant girl on the night of Christ's trial and crucifixion is now standing in front of thousands and leaders and declaring that there is salvation in no other name. How does that happen? The fullness of the Spirit of God. Boldness. Preaching. How did Peter go from denying his Lord to boldly declaring these things before the Jewish authorities, knowing that they might crucify him just as they crucified Christ? The answer is simply this, 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Speaking of boldness, skip down to verse 31 of chapter 4. Here's the church together praying after Peter had been released. And when they had prayed earnestly, the place where they were gathered was shaken, and they were all, note this, filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak the word of God with confidence. And you know this. Here they were, praying evidence of the Spirit of God in a life. Here they were, proclaiming Christ in the face of danger, evidence of the Spirit of God in a life. God sends persecution among the church and sends them out because they were to be his witnesses where? Beginning in Jerusalem, then to Judea, then to Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the earth. So take a look down at chapter 6. This is a different context altogether. Often it's used to distinguish the office of an elder from that of a deacon. You remember that the, the Jewish widows were getting more food or some food where the Hellenistic Jews, those Jews that had been raised outside of Israel, were, were, were getting less. And there was a complaint about this preferential treatment. Now in those days, verse 1, while the disciples were multiplying in number, they were, there was grumbling from the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not pleasing to God for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, select from among yourselves seven men. Now what should these men be like? Well, they should be men of good reputation. Men who are, here's our phrase, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we, whom we may put in charge of this need. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the service of the Word. And this Word pleased the whole congregation. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And it goes on to name the others who were likewise full of the Spirit of God. What do we see here a Spirit-filled life is like? Well, it's a life of a good reputation. It's a life that is marked by wisdom. It's a life that's evident to the church. It's a life of men who are trustworthy. Right? That's what the 12 say. Look, give me a man of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge. We want men we can trust. There's a spirit-filled man. 
And the emphasis really is on the willingness of these men, their eagerness to serve. That's what deacon means. It means servant. And they were to give themselves to orchestrating this ministry of mercy and helping feed the hungry in the church of Jerusalem. Chapter 7, verse 51 Here is Stephen preaching. And after accounting how the fathers had walked unfaithfully all throughout Israel's history, Stephen takes that, pre- that preacher's finger and puts it right in their chest. And he says, you men... Stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. And which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, you who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not observe it. Now when they heard this, they became furious in their hearts and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But crying out with a loud voice, they covered their ears and rushed at him in one accord. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And when they were stoning Stephen as he was, and they went on stoning Stephen as he was calling out and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Does that sound like anybody? And having said this, he fell asleep. My friends, what kind of boldness is that kind of preaching? Nobody called that seeker sensitive, I'll tell you. See, that's the kind of preaching that understands that life is ultimately serious. There is heaven and there is hell. And everyone in this room is going to one place or the other depending upon your response to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stephen knew it. Al Martin said that's why God never called a humorist to the pulpit because we traffic in matters of life and death. Stephen, think of it full of the Spirit, so controlled by the Spirit that in front of this hostile audience, instead of running, declares the truth of the Word of God and he pays the ultimate price for his bold, Spirit-empowered proclamation. They stone him to death. There's a Spirit-filled man, an overcomer, a perseverer, one one who is faithful unto death. And do not miss the truth that one of the great evidences of his being full of the Spirit is that he dies in the likeness of Christ, pleading for the forgiveness of the very people who are stoning him. A heart of forgiveness is evident of a Spirit-filled life. Acts 9 We see here the initial pouring out of the Spirit upon the Apostle Paul, still named Saul at this point. We'll pick up in verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and he laid his hands on Saul, Paul. 
He said, Brother Saul, the Lord sent me, that is Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, so that you may regain your sight and, here's our phrase, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he rose up and was baptized. Now, this may be another account where the baptism of the Spirit and filling of the Spirit are in fact seen in one text, though both are not mentioned. Here's the point. What happened to Paul? Well, suddenly he had illumination. He could understand truth. That's evidence of a spirit-filled life. He was also radically converted. And you know the first thing he did upon his conversion, and we see it in chapter 9 and verse 20, Immediately, what did, what did Paul do? It says, immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he, Jesus, is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be astounded. They were saying, is this not the one who was in Jerusalem who, who destroyed those that call upon that name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this one is the Christ. Paul preached. Acts 11, sorry to be moving so quickly. Acts 11, verse 22. Now the news about them reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas off to Antioch, our good friend Barnabas, who, when he arrived, saw the grace of God, all these saved people, he sees them, he rejoiced and he began to encourage them all with a purposeful heart to remain true to the Lord. For Barnabas was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a considerable crowd was brought to the Lord. And when he left for Tarsus to search for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch, and it happened that for an entire year they met with the church and taught a considerable crowd, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. What do we see in the life of Barnabas? Here is a man who is, by the account of Scripture, a good man. Here is a man whose joy is full. Here is a man who is an encourager of Christians. Here is a man who proclaimed the gospel, who's found teaching the word. That's a man who's full of the Holy Spirit. Acts 13, two more. Acts 13 and verse 9. We saw this same thing with Peter and John earlier. Now we will see it with Paul. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, verse 9, chapter 13, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when they saw what had happened, and they were astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Here's Paul, again, in the boldness of, to confront. You think about it. We see that John the Baptist was full of the Holy Spirit. Yes, you remember that? From his womb, from his mother's womb. Full of the Holy Spirit. What was John ultimately beheaded for? Faithfulness to confront evil unflinchingly. Here's Paul again looking wickedness in the eye and declaring truth. And here he is again teaching the word. Skip down to verse 52. Note here, it says the disciples were continually filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Well, how do we know that? Well, Paul had powerfully preached the word and the Jews had rejected it. And Paul then goes to the Gentiles. Look at verse 44. The next 
Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the words spoken by Paul, blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. Here again, the word is being preached, being declared. What have we seen? I'm just going to give you a, a quick list. What are the results of being filled with the Spirit? Speaking the Word of God. Powerfully preaching the gospel. Boldness in confronting evil and sin. Reputations marked by goodness and wisdom. Devoted to prayer. Serving others. Fearlessness and courage in the midst of suffering. People whose hearts are marked by a generous forgiveness overflowing with joy, mutual encouragement, faithfulness and obedience and truthfulness, worship and the glad exaltation of God. Beloved, you want to know what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit? Look there. What you do not see is anybody slain in the Spirit. You do not see people shaking and out of control. You do not see so-called holy laughter. You do not hear people barking like dogs and braying like sheep. You, you, you do not see any of that foolishness. What you see is Christ-likeness. Is that crystal clear? It could not be clearer. Being full of the Spirit is more miraculous and more mundane than we think. It is more miraculous because our tendency is to attribute our own faithfulness and goodness and sort of uh, uh, moral uh, uh, uprightness as something of our own doing. Do you understand that there's nothing good that is in you, that dwells in you, that it, that's in your flesh? You don't have the power to live the Christian life on your own. It is a miraculous thing that you love to hear preaching. The number of people in here compared to the number of people driving to Tahoe today, it pales in comparison. Why are you here? Because you have a received a love of the truth so as to be saved. Where'd you get it? You got it when you were baptized with the Spirit. That came in the divine download at regeneration. It's also more mundane than you might think because it's simply evidenced by these things that we talk about and seek to, to see our lives marked by all the time. Devotion to the Word, devotion to prayer, proclaiming Christ faithfully, suffering with gratitude and, and joy. Ephesians puts it this way, you want to know what it is to be filled with the Spirit? Here's what it is. It's speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. It's singing and it's making melody in your heart to the Lord. It's always giving thanks in all things. And it's being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. How does Galatians speak about being filled with the Spirit? Well, a life that is filled with the Spirit is set in opposition to a life that's characterized by the deeds of the flesh and where the flesh works out all of its wickedness and all these things that Paul lists out. Over here, he says, in a simple two verses, he directs you to the hard attitudes of your life and he says, listen, if you are full of the Spirit, your life will be marked by love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. I leave out anything? Gentleness. I always forget gentleness. Ah. A man full of the Spirit is gentle. Friends, don't be confused any longer. Don't look at all that wildness and say to yourself, boy, I'm really missing out on something. No. If these things are characteristic of your life, rejoice for the Spirit of God rests on you. If anyone ever in the history of this planet lived the Spirit-filled life, who would it be? The Lord Jesus Christ. You don't see any of those shenanigans in the Lord's life, I tell you that. There is no higher demonstration of what it means to be filled with the Spirit than the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the supreme example of a Spirit-filled life. How was it that Jesus lived this life for 33 years, never sinning once, not in deed, not in thought, not in motive, not in attitude? How did he do that? And for whom did he do that? Well, if you said he did it for me so that he might live the righteous life that I could never live, the kind of righteous life, perfectly moral life that God requires for the kingdom of heaven, he lived that righteous life on my behalf that he might impute it to me by faith. He would credit my account with his righteousness. Praise God. That's right. How did he do it? If he was going to live it for you, beloved, he had to live that righteous life as a what? As a man. You see, we want to look at Christ and we say, well, of course he was holy. Of course he lived a perfect life. He was God. We've excused more sin in our lives saying, what do you think I am, Jesus? Jesus, his divinity is absolutely essential. The infinite sacrifice that he had to make on our behalf could only be paid, in fact, by God himself. But the righteous life that he led, he had to lead it as a man, and he did so by utter, continual, day-by-day, moment-by-moment dependence upon the Spirit of God, like you and I are to do. If Christ is going to be the mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, had to live before the Father as a man. And he did it under the control and the empowerment and total dependence upon the Holy Spirit. What could this, just think about it for a minute, what could the Spirit of God contribute to Jesus' deity? Right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-eternal, co-equal, fully God. If Jesus was only combating sin by the power of his own divinity, There would have been no need to depend upon the Spirit of God, but he was living obediently in your place as a man dependent upon the Spirit as we're commanded to do. The Spirit provided Christ with the power and the grace and the wisdom and the knowledge and the faithfulness and the enablement that he needed day by day, moment by moment, to fulfill the mission that the Father had given him to do. How else could we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin? He had to be like us, and therefore he had to depend upon the Spirit, and he was anointed with the Spirit more than any man. 
And beloved, this should be a great encouragement to us. Because the life that Jesus lived obediently before the Father was lived in the power of the Spirit, the same Spirit who indwells you, and therefore the call for you to follow in his footsteps and lead a God-honoring and obedient life, you have the power of God residing within you. You can, in fact, live a life that honors him, not perfectly, but progressively growing in obedience and faithfulness so that your life might honor the God who saved you. Is that your heart to do that? I know it is. Out of gratitude for all of his goodness to us. The Lord humbled himself. Though he possessed all divinity and all of it was at his disposal, all the power and the wisdom and the knowledge and all authority, yet he accepted the call to live a life dependent upon what the Spirit would provide for him so that he might live as one of us. And he took that all the way to the cross. He was faithful unto death. Let your meditation be upon our great Savior who has poured out his spirit without measure upon us. Alan mentioned that in Ephesians that he read, in Ephesians 1, that seven times in him, in him, in him, three times in there it tells us why he saved us. Do you remember what it was? To the praise of the glory of his grace. That's why he's redeemed you. Let's worship him and remember him as we take the elements together. If I could have the men come forward and pass them out.